Welcome to Woolful, a podcast for fiber folk. I'm excited to share with you some incredible people I've had the opportunity to talk to in this community we love so much. From shearers and shepherds to knitters and shop owners, here's where you get to listen to a little part of their fiber journey. This episode is sponsored by Knitterly, a very special yarn shop created by Shelley Westcott based in Petaluma, California. I am always so amazed at the well-curated selection of yarns, fibers, and classes Shelly works so hard to provide all of us fiber enthusiasts. Make sure to visit when in Petaluma and online at shop.knitterly.com. Today we get to meet two fiber folk who are such an inspiration and both in their unique ways, Marianne Moody and Amy Higgins-Stambaugh of Wool Crush. Amy is an amazing natural dyer living on her farm in Columbia, Missouri, where she recently built a beautiful natural dye studio. You can find her at woolcrush.com and on Instagram at woolcrush. And with that, here's Amy. I've been giving it a lot of thought over the last year because I've stepped it up this notch of, wow, I'm spending so much of my time and my energy and my mind and, you know, moving in this direction towards natural dyes most recently, that it made me like look back, well, how did this start? And why is this not going away, this impulse? I would say probably 15 or 17 years ago, I was living on the coast of Oregon, just me and my, who was a boyfriend at the time, now husband. And I was, jobs were hard to come by. And so I had a lot of time to kill. And so I ended up walking to this, into this house that was indeed a yarn shop. And I sat down and The woman like taught me how to knit and then I bought like the little book. This is pre-internet in my world and I bought the book, I bought the yarn. I went back to our little cabin we were renting and um, couldn't figure it out. I couldn't like see how like when you just see a two-dimensional knitting like example, this was pre-YouTube videos, I couldn't figure out how to make it work and so I just kind of put it away and it didn't capture my mind or whatever. I didn't I didn't follow through with it. And then about 10 years ago I got reintroduced to it and that was really when it kind of uh, there was no going back. I've just been, you know, as my husband says, competing for every minute to stay with the yarn, like to to knit, to finish the project. It, it's you know, it just is like for our, I remember for our 7th anniversary it was this very, it happened to me, maybe wool was the traditional gift you give. And it was this, it was just so perfect because this was the year where it really like became um, a a thing in my life that was just undeniable and Mm -hmm. that I can't quite stop working with it. But that was like the path that got me there. Then I began, you know, I discovered yarn shops in my area and I would go in and I was just infatuated with color and how to bring the colors together, like according to my own you know, what I thought my style was, and I don't have an art background and I, that was formal, but yet I was completely turned on by this concept of getting to combine colors together and then textures. And, and then I started to grow weary of having to be what those colors were, what those textures were determined by the person who owned the yarn shop. And so then I started to look down the path of learning to spin, learning to dye, and, you know, these, so these are these three and four year segments that has brought me t- to this point, like where a year ago when I was just really ready to go the natural dye route because it is um, more reflective of everything I do. Um, I'm, a, I'm a cook. I'm a gardener. I live, strive to live a healthy lifestyle. So the natural dyes is just this nice, solid piece that I can really like hold on to. It feels like it'll be the palette I try to explore color 
combinations, like knowing how to see color, where to get them. I hope to learn to get them through natural dyeing versus the acid dyes that I was working with in the past. Mm-hmm. It happens to a lot of people where I think it's kind of an evolution over time, but it stems from this very early kind of inclination to live more naturally. This idea of like once you, like it's always been wool. Like I've, I knew right away I was a yarn snob and it wasn't going to be acrylic. So it's always been wool. And so then the more you explore what wool is, you get into different categories of you know, breeds of sheep and all that that brings to the table too, you know, the variety mm-hmm. that's possible. What's some of your favorite sheep breeds or fiber varieties that you like to work with? Well, I've heard some people um, refer to it that the first, of course, everybody loves Merino at the beginning, especially with spinning. You, you love merino and then you start to explore other fibers and you're maybe not just as interested in how it feels, it's how it looks. Or I shouldn't say, maybe you're not as interested in how it feels, if it feels soft or not, you might be interested, you start to expand into different textures. So I've worked with, I of course, merino and um, cormo and border lester and um, blue face lester and just silk, just the whole, the gamut of like how you, you are drawn to one thing at first and then you expand outward as you explore. Mm-hmm. Is there one in particular that you've become extra fond of? Maybe how it upticks the dye or just how working with it has been? Well, I think it feels like I have the greatest access to Merino and Polworth has come on the scene recently. I go with my, you know, what I can get a hold of. Mm-hmm. So I would say that I'm working with those two. And Targi mm-hmm. has been something as well, like that I've been, now that I'm moving towards making less of my own yarn and actually buying yarn that's sourced from the USA, then there, it's kind of Targi, Polworth, and Merino seem to be most available. So I recently laid my hands on some, um, a local alpaca farmer blends hers with other breeds. And she had this Cormo from upstate New York that was unbelievable it was so beautiful and so luscious you know I think most dyers or I should say I don't want to say most but a lot of dyers source their um, yarns if they're dyeing for like Etsy or or whatever it might be they source their yarns through the same um, wholesale house here in the U.S. and and so that was what I was doing for a portion of my stuff you know like for the 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 mill spun yarns so I was looking through my options and I, USA grown, like that sounded like something I could attach to. Part of this is like knowing what's in my product. If I'm going to put my product out for sale, if I'm going to take it to, you know, a group of people with this intention, like of, you know, this is what I'm offering. This is naturally dyed. This is, you know, environment, you know, I'm trying to be very aware of how I use my resources and my water and, you know, because it, because not all even natural dyes are necessarily healthy um, mm-hmm. for the body and for the skin. So just trying to like find out more and more about the entire process. So it ultimately leads me to this idea of like, wow, wouldn't it be great if I just grew my own? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but then I question the abil- the ability to do. You can't do everything. You know, it's challenging to do everything. So partnering with a farmer. My recent idea is there is a wonderful uh, farmer here in about 20 miles from me who has about 400 merino sheep, and he's been raising them for about 20 years. And his farming practices are inspiring. They are like his soil. Like he does mob grazing. He um, does intensive planting for the 
for the animals. And plus it's a very fine fleece, a very fine product. But being able to find then a mill that you can take that to and still keep the cost like somewhat competitive with what people want to pay for a hand dyed, you know, yarn. It, it's, that's a question I have right now. I'm trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that's a big, that's a big question. Just those have been very high level numbers that I've been throwing around in my own mind as we're, you know, starting to build this mill. And my thought was like, Oh, I'll be a local producer, you know, like most of my work will come from, you know, local people. And then just talking to different mill owners, a lot of them say that, no, most of your stuff will be from anywhere because once they find someone that can process it really well and does a good job, yeah, that's really what is the determining factor. And But people are still throwing away a large amount of wool because of processing costs. And so right. how do you balance that? And that's, that's a question that I have for myself. And I think, yeah, I don't even know what the answer is. I just think it maybe part of it is just awareness. If mm-hmm. there's more people like us that are sharing our stories and doing things to make progress, maybe it'll get traction over time. Yeah. I think with knitting, there's, um, you know, there's, there's so many different elements to it. One is that the actual act of knitting like has value in itself. And then there's the product that it creates. That's another like valued like object. Then, but then relating that back to like the the farming aspect of where it came from, I'm just thinking like so much about how it's all connected and and what the potential there is for um, bringing it all together. And I mean, I could buy a sweater at Old Navy. Like we know this. We know that we could. I could buy yarn at Hobby Lobby if I wanted to buy yarn at Hobby Lobby. Like. There are so many areas in our lives where we could choose to take the most cost-effective, value-added route. And this is reflected in like our food culture. This is reflected in, in, in many areas of our lives. But I think that there is a market of people. Um, there is a sentiment that people want less and they want quality. That alone might open up an area where you can then actually have yeah, a market for your product that because the value takes so much time, it increases, increases the cost, but that the impact is is worth it mm-hmm. or, or the lack of impact maybe on, you know, on the animal, on the, on the, the, uh, the land. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear about your dreams that you, that you would love to have in wool. In an ideal world and time were like not a factor meaning that I could have the time to knit and dye and take care of animals, <laughs> that would be the dream, to be able to walk out into my front field and have sheep running around and know how to shear them. Because um, I did take a, a uh, sheep shearing class maybe two, three years ago, two or three years ago, at one of our local extensions. And it was, you know, it was shocking. It's not as easy as it looks to like shear your own animals. Not that everybody goes that way. Obviously, there are professionals that'll come around and do it. And I have friends that are have a goat dairy, and and just seeing like all that goes into animal husbandry, um, and knowing there's only a certain amount of time in the day. Like, how? What do I really want? Am I going this artistic like route of color, texture, yarn, natural dyeing? This route totally or you know can I I don't know if there's enough time to do it all and so that's where I'm at right now 
mm-hmm. and trying to get real with that. Mm-hmm. Did you mention that you have some property somewhere? Yeah, I live on 50 acres. We have a home and we have a cabin that we restored that we currently like rent, like on something kind of like Airbnb, like called VRBO, where we have guests that stay there. So I feel like I'm building all the infrastructure to have a retreat, a workshop space. I'm bringing my, you know, continuing to work on my knowledge end of finding a voice to teach what I'm learning. And so I'm, I'm not sure like exactly which avenue I'm going to go down. I, I sound a little schizophrenic, but there are, there are like these paths and I'm trying to figure out what would make me happiest. Mm-hmm. You know? I was looking at your Instagram earlier this morning before we jumped on the phone and I saw that you had been growing some of the dye plants that you'd been using in your natural yeah. dye. And I was yeah. hoping maybe you would talk a little bit more about your natural dye process. And one of the details is that awesome antique, I don't know what. It's a drying rack. Yeah. Yeah, a drying rack. So I'll just give you a little bit of background. My brother's actually coming this weekend to help me create um, a dye studio in my garage by installing um, windows so I have more light. I, up till this point, have done the running in and out of my own home to use, like, uh, my stove in my kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I have these giant propane burners that I have left over from a a beer brewing operation that my brother created. So I have all these pieces, and I'm trying to create and bring it all together into a dye studio. Like, in the studio, I have fiber and yarn that I've been mordanting washing and then I'm mordanting them with alum. I have an indigo vat that I've been keeping alive for the last eight weeks or so, maybe even longer. It might even be almost three months that it's been alive. Um, It's also in my garage, which will be my dye studio. Basically, I'm trying to develop a palette of colors that I can go to as like that, that will be like my line of colors, like for a season, like that would be the dream, like to have, you know, a, a four or five colors that I wanted to focus on and sourcing them as close to home, be it that I'm growing them. I've grown like marigold and dyer's coreopsis and yellow cosmos and weld. I'm trying to establish a good um, weld um, production for my yellow. So I would have my yellow and my blue, and then I want to plant matter for my red and then grow from there, like how to combine them to make the colors that I want. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, when I'm actually in the process of dyeing, I will spend like three or four days weighing everything out. I've had the good fortune of having a workshop with Catherine Ellis. Um, She's in North Carolina, and she works with Michelle Garcia who believe I believe is like a French chemist, natural dye um, expert per se. And uh, her style of teaching and her style and method of dyeing perfectly aligned with what I wanted in a teacher. She's meticulous. She's looking for quality. And I mean, she said there is value in taking your kids out and picking pokeberries and putting them in the pot and seeing the color there's value in that, but if you're trying to create a yarn or a fabric that's going to be um, something that people can use in their art or use in their work or they want to have maintain that color, then we have to consider light fastness. We have to consider wash fast. And we have to consider, you know, what are the healthy processes that we're using? Like using alum, you know, is the least toxic way to mordant to use. I'm trying to stay very focused on 
bringing my knowledge base from what I learned from her as long lasting, historically like known dyes. Mm -hmm. I'm trying not to get super distracted by things that she's done light fast tests. So I've got to, I have all these slides of, you know, how things look after 30 days under a light fast test. You know, what will that color look like? So if somebody buys my yarn and they use it in a weaving, it will be that color, you know, because artistically, like people choose things because of, you know, what is there at the moment when they're putting it together. And yes, you might be able to surrender and say, I'm okay with it changing over time. But I don't think it would be fair of me to just try to sell a product to somebody that um, then they didn't know that's what they were in for, or they couldn't predict what it was going to look like Mm -hmm. a year later. These are some of the principles that guide me through my, you know, where am I going with this? What will wool crush like as a yarn line? What will that represent? You know, mm-hmm. I think that's something that probably a lot of beginners don't realize either. And it's definitely there's like these guiding principles that are really apparent in your process, which I think is awesome mm-hmm. instead of just instant gratification. Yeah. I would love to hear more about your indigo vat. I think I have you heard or seen this periodical like magazine called um, Bloom by Idlecore. I have seen the cover, but I don't have it myself. If you ever get a chance, you should look at it. But they do kind of like trend and forecasting, you know, fashion with horticulture. And uh, probably like four years ago, I one of my friends brought back this magazine from Paris, and there was this whole section on indigo, and it was interesting because like. I usually am not a fan of the color blue, especially like the blue that is like a country, I would call it like a country blue. Like that's not a color that I really jive with. But these seeing images of like really intense, rich indigo colors, it just started like kind of seeping in through my consciousness of like, wow, maybe I do like blue. Like maybe blue is something that that I could totally work with and be inspired by. And then over the last like three years, it's I realized my wardrobe is becoming more blue. Like I'm seeing so much more of it. If I look backwards, I see where it like orig- this original seed was planted, but it's definitely opened me up to this entire new color that I never thought I would identify with. But my vat itself is really fantastic because it's like a sourdough where you have to feed it and you, it's alive and you're kind of taking care of it. And I love that my vat is only like made of really edible products. Like it's indigo, it's lime and it's fructose. So it's not, there's nothing really like scary about it. There's no thiox. There's not like chemicals that would make me kind of shy away or feel like I had to. As long as I don't want blue stained hands, I wear gloves when I'm working with it. But that's only so I just try to minimize like, any sort of overexposure. But and I don't want blue hands, I guess. But <laughs> but now I'm just like I'm just loving that uh, it's really an alive kind of dying process. This vat is so um, I, I'm I'm excited about it. And it's long lasting. You can keep it alive. Like I haven't had to keep like marigolds and things like that. You exhaust the dye and it's gone. My vat, um, if I take care of it, is it's going to last a really long time. I can really get a lot of color out of it. So that's exciting. As I'm listening to you talk about, about all these things, it's like the passion. Well, not only is it contagious, but it's, I, it's really inspiring. Where would you like to see your yarn line go? Are you hoping to start an online shop at some point or what is kind of your dreams around that? Cause I know a lot of the people that are listening, they're going to be your number one cheerleaders <laughs> and supporters. <laughs> right. Like in the short term, I would love to have, 
I've been working on a website. Um, I'm trying to develop like a brand, a strong brand and a logo so that, you know, it goes back to this idea of establishing trust with your consumer. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to take it slow and I'm trying to come up with something that reflects my values. So yes, I would love to have an online shop that I could basically, you know, I would like to replace my income with selling yarn, which might be lofty. I don't know. You know, it's like at what point, how much do you have to do in order, you know, for something to be deemed successful? You know, mm -hmm. that's a personal question I have in my mind. Something to be economically viable. How much do you sell? Can you even make that much? You know, mm -hmm. I had a really cool conversation with a knitting designer the other day about what defines success and Mm -hmm. It's an age-old question, and I think it's different for everyone. You know, it can be right. financial. It could be just how much you're learning, um, how many people see it, and, yeah. and all these different things. But for me, at least, financially, it has to be supportive, like whatever I do. But at the same right. time, I'm kind of a firm believer in when there's a will, there's a way. And if you're genuine in your pursuit yeah, and and you love what you do and you're loving those around you as you do it, I feel like people, yeah. they, they gravitate towards that. And in the end, right. it'll take care of itself. And I know that's like the most <laughs> blase way to say it. But honestly, especially in this niche of a community, I have never seen so right. many encouraging people ever around one thing. Yeah, I completely agree. That is one avenue of where my brain goes. And then the fear, I guess it's probably fear, like where the other side goes. Mm -hmm. But like success right now for me is I'm sitting here on my couch and I'm knitting with this indigo dyed yarn that I made. And I'm looking to my left and I have my stash of stuff I've made all summer long. And I'm feeling pretty successful. <laughs> you know, like I'm like, I'm just sitting here. I recently today, over the last 24 hours, I was helping a woman via Facebook, like messaging she was doing her first indigo vat and we were talking back and forth. I was emailing her what I had discovered, what I had known. And, and it felt so great to share the knowledge mm -hmm. because someone shared that with me. And I've, even though I've only had my vat going for a short period of time, I've learned something in that period of time. And I was able to help her troubleshoot where her vat needed to go. And so in a sense, there's this, this knowledge that you're getting to pass on and keep alive. And that has value. Mm -hmm. That felt good. <laughs> I totally agree. And you're right. Fear is a very real thing. I encounter it on a daily basis. I always have aspirations and things I want to do. And my career is not around fiber. I don't know. That's what it takes yeah. to do dreams is to take a little bit of risk, but at the same time, have that level of good feeling around it. Like yeah. this is the right thing. Uh, you really should listen to that Natalie Channon podcast after this because she's a storyteller. So wow, it was really easy to listen to her describe her last 15 years of, of building this business that she has. She pulls all these pieces that we're touching on like together in, in a way that is uh, because she's got 15 years under her belt. Like she speaks about it really confidently. Mm -hmm. And it's um, so when you're saying when people are supportive and people are like encouraging you to take this step, it's, it's great to, that there, that's really necessary to hear that when you're making a transition like we all are. Yeah. And so many people in this fiber community are at the cusp of something like this, whether it's 
starting their own shop or just learning how to natural dye or opening an online shop or spinning or starting their own flock or whatever it is. So many people have just started or that's their dream. And what we're talking about resonates with a lot of different people. I loved how you were just describing how you're sitting there knitting with indigo dyed fiber that you did that you know, and you're looking at your stag and knits and I do that too. I'll kind of put a little pile of the things that I've made. Oh yeah. Okay. Like this is, yeah. I mean, it's a very satisfactory feeling what you touched on earlier, how knitting it speaks to you both from like a therapeutic standpoint, but also it's a gift that you're either giving to yourself. Like the end product is a gift that you're giving to yourself or to someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, also if you're sourcing that, it's that timeline of, of benefactors, I guess, from this single act. And yeah, I love it. Like, I don't know any other better way to put it into words than you already did. It's almost as if it's counterculture because it's so opposite of what the mainstream culture is telling us Mm -hmm. to place value in the actual act of doing. Mm -hmm. I recently was, it was, I had two things to do this week, like that were on my mind. One is to do this podcast with you. And the other was to fill out this little, like kind of a grant in competition to like get this design work that I really want for my branding and my logo and I had to write a biography and what my project was and how it benefits other people. And it's challenging to quantify, like, what is knitting? Like, what is the value of yarn? Like, what is, you know, when you can go buy a sweater for $2, why is it important to make one? Mm-hmm. And it made me get really real with the fact that in making, in doing, I'm a better person. I'm a better person to my kids. I'm a better person to my community. Like I'm a better person. And and if that's our task in life is to be a good person, then I'd say knitting helps me get there. Like, and it helps other people get there because when you're drawn to something and then you give yourself the time to do it and to, and you take that time for yourself, then you're creating positive change. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's valuable enough. (laughs) No, I think it is. That leads me to another thought, which I think is we're talking about all these crazy aspirations and, and they are crazy and, but they're exciting and and totally possible. But at the same time, you don't have to do those things. People listen to this. They don't have to have these aspirations to give and receive the same benefit that we're talking about. And you just said, maybe that in itself is valuable enough. You're spot on, on that. And if that's one thing that anyone who Mm -hmm. meets me could walk away from, is just realize that my love for wool could be somehow infectious to them and inspire them to knit or even just to purchase wool products. That's enough. Right. You know, I asked myself, okay, so say I get this successful yarn line going, um, will it be enough? Will that bring me happiness as far as, you know, every job gets old, every job gets tedious. If I turn this thing that I love into a job, will it, how will it feel? I'm kind of like trying to look into the crystal ball And I had a couple of women from town come out the other day and they wanted to, you know, look at my yarn and we were chatting, we were knitting and they ended up buying a couple of skeins each in that exchange of them like falling in love with the color, the way I had fallen in love with it. And then them taking it and making something out of it and then sharing, like I get to see what they've made out of it. That felt fantastic. I used to do a lot of finished products. Like I've had pop-up shops and sold my work. And when I see other people like wearing it and loving it, it feels, it feels amazing. So I'm sure there are lots of other ways that people get this thrill of, of feeling satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me like that, those are pretty, pretty awesome experiences, you know? 
For this week's Man on the Street, I asked a handful of fiber enthusiasts to answer the following question. Did fiber arts run in your family, or did you just happen to fall into your fiber art? Here's what they had to say. Hi, this is Carlene. I live in Dover Plains, New York. You can find me on Instagram and Ravelry at CarleneRTY, C-A-R-L-E-N-E-R-T-Y. Fiber arts and crafting in general does run in my family. Uh, I remember my maternal grandmother, who we called Mama, uh, always had a basket of projects next to her chair. Embroidery, sewing, and crochet. Uh, she had macrame plant holders throughout her home. And I remember a crocheted blanket with a yellow and white daisy motif and a green border that was always draped over her sofa, and it was actually quite itchy. I think it was acrylic, but nevertheless, I was always attracted to the texture and the detail of it. And uh, she passed away before I was able to learn these crafts from her, but I do think that seeing her work on her projects was a catalyst for me picking up knitting later on as a teenager. Hi, this is Beatrice from Portland, Maine. You can find me on Instagram at Thread and Tweedle. Uh, fiber arts do run in my family. My great-grandmother was a knitter, and I never met her, but I now have a stash of things that she made for my mom and her siblings that my kids are now wearing, which is pretty cool. Nobody in my family taught me to knit, though. My grandmother did teach me to sew. She got me hooked, bought me my first sewing machine, and had me sewing all my clothes through high school and then helped me sew my wedding gown. But it was actually my husband who taught me to knit. And I hope someday that maybe my kids will get hooked just like we have. Hi, this is Amber, currently of Vero Beach, Florida. You can find me on Instagram and Ravelry as DapperU. That's D-W-E. When I was growing up, there was no fiber art in my family. My grandmother used to quilt as a child, and she sewed out of necessity, um, but there was never any yarn or fiber in the house. So when I decided that I wanted to learn, I went to YouTube and the Internet to teach myself. Um, Because of that, I make an effort to teach anyone in my life that's interested um, just because I know what it's like not to have it available. Hi, this is Jennifer from Asheville, North Carolina. You can find me on Instagram at jkknits. That's J-A-Y-K-A-Y underscore knits. While I don't come from a family of fiber artists, I do come from a long line of makers on both my mom and dad's sides of the family. My grandmother was an avid quilter. My mom is an amazing seamstress and quilter, and my grandfather is a woodworker. I fell into knitting and fiber arts when my now husband and I were living in Portland, Oregon after college in 2008. I worked at a boys and girls club and I saw a group of elementary school aged kids knitting in their yarn club. Some of them were insanely talented for just being in elementary school. So I thought to myself, if they can do that, I can do that. So I went to the store that night and I bought a starter kit, ended up throwing out the book that came with it and using YouTube videos. I've hardly put the needles down since, and as they say, the rest is history. I first came across our next guest's work a while back via the Design Sponge blog, and was immediately enamored with her use of color in her weavings, adventurous designs, and excitement around building community. 
Marianne didn't come from a legacy of weavers, but she's working hard to leave one with this beautiful fiber community. You can find her at MarianneMoody.com and on Instagram at MarianneMoody. And with that, here's Marianne. I'd love to hear a little bit about your fiber journey and maybe yeah. maybe take me back, you know, how it how it started and when it started mm. and where it's led to today. Yeah, I've been listening to your podcast for a while and, you know, everyone has these amazing, beautiful, blissful um, fiber journeys and I really wish I had one of those beautiful tales about how, you know, yarn runs through my veins and, and my and my sweet grandma, you know, taught me as a child or or about how I studied for decades to hone my skills and, you know, I can trail off my expertise. Um, but the truth is I kind of fell into weaving and it was sort of equal parts luck and um, the opportunities of the internet, I guess, that have me where I am. When we were younger, you know, my, my family weren't particular particularly interested in making things. You know, I'm the youngest of six kids, so they were basically interested in getting by. <laughs> but I think it all began, I guess, um, when I was op shopping or thrifting. My sister would take me as teenagers and we would, you know, just delve into these amazing, they were almost costumes. Um, but I was always really drawn to the 70s aesthetic and like beautiful embroidery and, you know, sequins and costumes and things. And then sort of, you know, as I went through university and became a teacher and was fitting out my first flat, so, you know, I continued on with, you know, the textiles, I guess the look of the 70s in, in my home. And I was always really interested in the, the way vintage textiles looked and the, the sort of stories that they carried behind them. And they sort of, they seem, they seem to have this, um, this history that I was always searching for. Like, I, I felt like, you know, I had these, um, you know, these Italian friends growing up and these Greek friends, and they would always talk about, you know, going home, you know, going home to their home countries to, you know, explore their past and their histories. And we were like, eighth generation Australian and I, I went you know as a as a teenager I felt like I had no history and so I was really drawn to these vintage pieces that had this these stories and this history so I was really I really enjoyed that while I was growing up and then I became a teacher and I became an art teacher and I really I loved it for the longest time and then suddenly I stopped loving it and I was, you know, I was in a um, an elementary school and it just, it became, it was too hard. Like you just burn out as a teacher. And I taught for 10 years. We were moving schools um, and I had to clean out the art storeroom. And I don't know if you've ever been into an art storeroom, but mm-hmm. sometimes they're as big as the art room and they're like this Aladdin's cave of, you know, things that have mostly been donated by parents since the school begun, since the school was built, there's stuff mm-hmm. in there, bottle tops and raffia and ropes and, and you know, at the beginning of the school year you go in there and you're like, what are we going to teach this year? You sort of pull things out. And because we were moving schools, the principal said you need to, but like he gave us a, we call it a skip, you guys call it a, a dumpster, mm-hmm. um, gave us a dumpster and said basically you need to get rid of 
90% of what's in there because there's only little cupboards at the new school that's being built. There's no art store in. And depending on your personality, whether, you know, you're a, a keeper or a, or a chucker, I guess, you know, you would be elated or crying at the scene of the other art teacher and I, like, just taking boxes out to the dumpster and, like, having to get rid of all of this stuff. And I found sort of in the back under some newspapers this box and it had a hole in the top and then I sort of opened it up and I wasn't sure whether it had all the pieces in there. But it was it had this really 70s-looking wall hanging on the front of the box and I thought, well, that's that's my deal. Like I like I like that stuff. And so, you know, I walked out the start, uh, out of the art room towards the dumpster and walked past the dumpster to the boot of my car. And I thought, I'm not throwing that out. I'm, I'm going to take that one home. And it was about the same time, you know, fibre art just started popping up in my life. So it was probably about four, four or five years ago. And I was just noticing it more and more. And something inside me, like, turned on. And it's like... <laughs> you know not necessarily in a sexual way but sort of in a sexual like this I was turned on I was like suddenly I was excited about something in my life that I wanted to know more I wanted to do it I wanted to know about it and so I was sort of you know looking a little bit of stuff on the internet but I didn't even know what it was called knitty things 70 knitted hanging things like I couldn't find I didn't know the words to search for and I guess, you know, around around that time was when I got um, pregnant with Murray, my first child. And um, I started going through this identity shift. I, I'd always done more than one thing. So at the same time as teaching, I was also selling vintage clothes. Um, so I was sort of, you know, honing this business side as well as um, as teaching at the same time. And, you know, the more pregnant I got, the more I started to realise, oh, okay, so I'm not going to be a teacher anymore. And it's probably going to be quite hard for me to run my business the way that I have been because it was taking up so much time, sort of sourcing and then shooting and then you know, listing things and then all, you know, it just went on and on the process. I guess it was really hard when I, you know, when I had Murray, I was suddenly at this point, it was, it was almost like, who am I? I'm, I'm not a teacher. I'm not the person who sells vintage clothes. I'm, I'm a mum, which is hard. It's hard to do and it's hard to change this, like, you know, to struggle with this, this identity as well. And I had lots of time at home alone with Murray. He would be either, you know, gooing or sleeping or feeding. Or... And so while he was sleeping, I was making wall hangings I was doing just practicing, doing little things, experimenting, and and I'd already built up a following, a social media following with my vintage clothes. So you know, it wasn't it wasn't a huge following, but it was you know uh, it was a community, and I started sharing what I was making. And I guess these people, predominantly women, they were already into vintage clothes, so they were already into that seventies, sixties, seventies aesthetic, and so they dug what I did and I was getting this really lovely meaningful feedback that just made me uh, feel like I had a purpose feel like I could I was somebody else 
you know, once you have your child, because you you sort of drop out of so society for a little while, really, like you before that, you know, you go to the pub with your friends, or you know, it's it's a lot harder to carry on, you know, a nor- that normal life that you used to. And so, I was getting this lovely connection with the wider community through social media. At the same time, I'm like, I'm sharing and they're saying, that's great, Marianne. Wow, that's beautiful. And I'm feeling good about myself. And I'm trying to push myself and I'm trying to try different things and um, making things up as I went along, really. There were no, no tutorials online that I could find. And I kept looking up weaving. And the tutorials that were coming up were hair weaves, hair, <laughs> hair weaved. And in Australia, hair weaves aren't a thing. Well, they weren't at this time. And so I couldn't understand what, what I was typing in, why it was wrong. Because why was I getting hair weaves? What, what did I need to type in to, to get this thing that I wanted? And so, you know, I was thought I was inventing stitches and I'm inventing these, new, you know, and so proud of myself. And then, you know, I finally got a few um, books on weaving and it was like, oh, no, okay, yeah generations and generations of cultures have been doing this for hundreds of years and it's actually got called this and I'm doing it slightly wrong but it's okay (laughs) but then it was on Instagram that actually one of my followers Belinda um her name is Mm -hmm. I am alchemy yeah and she's a weaver and she she's (laughs) beautiful so beautiful and she was was like, oh, Marianne, you're doing so well. It's doing so well with this. I think you're ready for Raya knots. And it was like, ding! It was this rite of passage that she'd given me. I went to the computer and I typed in Raya knots, and suddenly all of these sites and tutorials and things opened up that I was on the I was suddenly on the right pages. I didn't know that keyword, like a keyword, a key stitch from the type of uh, weaving that I wanted to get into I didn't have any of the right words to type in and she was the first one who was like yeah and from there like I could just I, I just was able to learn so much on my own because she'd given me that you know that one special word that one key word that I could mm-hmm. use in searches so yeah, I felt like you know Instagram was really giving me the support as well as you know the education. It was this really lovely way for me to learn, but also show my learning. And and from Instagram, you know, more on the sort of combination of um, technology, the internet, and luck. Um, a lady named Megan Morton who runs the school in Australia, and it's a craft school where she gets artists to come and teach workshops. She contacted me and said, do you want to come and teach a workshop? And I was like, wow, okay, actually I think I, I really do because uh, I'd been away from, you know, I'd, I'd been so burned in the end by by teaching the day-to-day grind and then this was an opportunity to connect with people who were interested in what I was doing, which was really exciting as well. It was like I could actually see them in real life and because I feel like, I love weaving and my husband loves me and my friends love me, but they don't necessarily love weaving the way that I love weaving. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, I, I, you know, I would get to be in a room full of people who were interested in what I was interested in. 
um, which was, you know, just so exciting and invigorating and energy giving to actually be in a room, you know, for a few hours with those people. And pretty quickly I learned that I I wanted that to continue outside of that three-hour classroom. I didn't want that to end there for either me or the weavers. And I didn't want to be the person who owned weaving. Like I didn't want them to have to come to me to get information or get to each other. So I started making hashtags for each class, a different hashtag, where they could share their work, share their learning, and the way that Belinda shared with me, you know, have you found a new stitch? Have you found a new, um, some new fibre? Have you got a person who makes tools? Like share it with each other mm-hmm. so that they could find each other and it wouldn't have to go through me. The, the learning could continue without me. Like they could create their own community. And one of my first classes actually still, they have a monthly meetup in a beer garden where they all bring their looms. And sometimes there's two people and sometimes there's 15 people. That's and they, so it's amazing. It is amazing. It's like, um, you know, from that little workshop, it's like, go be free. It's like everything that I want for them. I want them to, to, yeah, to, to continue the learning, continue the growth, but also keep in contact with each other. Because when you go home, your husband will love you, but he won't necessarily love your weaving. <laughs> yeah. I think that's like that real community making, I think was really important for me. Um, sort of bring people together and let them be able to find each other again. So what I did as you know, uh, as an addition to my classes is I would um, have a different florist come in for each workshop, and I would you know have them have the flower, um, bring the flowers, but then I would give them like a free workshop so they could be there to talk to the people in the class but also have everyone like follow them on Instagram and tell them, you know, if you want flowers in the future, then you should, you know, get in contact with this person who you now know, like maybe you're getting married in the near future or whatever it is, Mother's Day or, and also like um, Tannis from Tannis Fibre Arts in Mm -hmm. Canada. So we had her for a long time. We would use her yarns in the workshops and I would make sure, and I invited her, she actually came down for one of my workshops so that she could meet the people in the class and also like I would always tag her so that people could find her again and find the yarns again. And so I think like even though we only, had, we only shared the physical space for three hours, I really wanted them to be able to you know, enjoy that moving forward whether that was, you know, the, the space that I had hired, I made sure that they could follow them on Instagram, um, the people who were helping me in the class if I had helpers. So I had um, Sarah who um, is a weaver and her Instagram is Omina and Rachel from Heddle and Needle. Um, so I made sure that people followed them so that, you know, it's not, it's not about me, it's about your learning journey so you can learn from lots, lots of other people. Yeah, and I guess I never, I never really had a plan. It's, it just feels, it definitely just feels like a lot of very fortunate opportunities. I just tried to be present and open, and and mindful, and you know, try to make decisions that are right for me and those around me. I guess I try to grow as an individual and help 
make, make, make meaningful connections for both me and the people who are in my group. And I guess everything's grown really organically because I've tried to listen to what people want and I've tried to supply them in an ethical and you know, sustainable way. So, you know, right at the beginning, I was just weaving and showing people my work. And then you know, my followers are like, we'd like classes. And the, um, so we started offering classes and then people were like, well, I can't make the classes. I'd like, you know, can you make up kits? So, you know, we found a, you know, a sustainable loom maker and we use a, a lot of vintage yarn. As, and if, if we don't use vintage yarn, then we use hand-spun yarn or hand-dyed yarn from small producers on Etsy. Mm-hmm. So um, it's very rare that I go to a yarn shop. Um, I try to support, you know, small women, women-led businesses. And, yeah, I guess try to keep it as small as possible. One more lucky, you know, lucky thing is my, the person who works for me, how the three people who work for me, so Kaylin contacted me which was another piece of luck and also through the internet Mm -hmm. (laughs) the opportunities on the internet and she was just like I like what you do can I come and have a coffee I was like great yeah well let's go and have a beer and um do you want to come and work for me but let's go and have a beer first (laughs) and sort of that night we had quite a few beers and I was like great okay you're going to come and work for me you're going to you know manage help help me manage my business because I don't know what I'm doing (laughs) And she has just been, like, it's so fortunate that she is as capable and wonderful as she is because she has just been able to really, you know, take on everything that I've, that I've thrown at her and more um, just, like, in such an excited way. And then, you know, the, the business grew so quickly that within six months we have um, uh, another two textile geniuses yeah, Blair and Jess, and they, you know, I'll be in a class teaching and I'll be saying things and they'll say, oh, you know, poke their head around the corner. I'll say, and this is just a really lazy way of something that I do, and they'll poke their head around the corner and say, actually, Marianne, that's Jacquard. And I'll be like, oh, okay, it's a thing. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's you know, I get to learn through their learning, which is lovely as well. Mm-hmm. That's really mm. great. It's exciting to hear about a different, I guess, journey uh, or perspective. You were saying that this wasn't in your family for many, many years and passed down to you, but that you just kind of fell into it. And I think it's such an awesome thing to see people just kind of making their way. Uh, And I think that that's really awesome. Mm. Well, I guess everybody's different. You know, when I was a teacher for the longest time, we'd drill it into the kids and, um, yeah, we're like every everybody's different, and that's what makes society special. And but it's something in the back of your mind that just sort of thinks that I don't like, especially with weaving. I feel like I can't call myself a weaver because I haven't travelled the path. I haven't, you know, I haven't had many years, you know, 10, 20 years on the loom, and I haven't studied, or my you know, grandma or mother hasn't taught me. So even though you know, I, I I know that I know deep down that everybody's different and everybody has their own journey. It's still a struggle that that you like. I I feel like I haven't jumped through the hoops, or you know, that that I haven't passed the test. What I think's great about where you've come from and what you're doing is that it's approachable. Uh, it shows others that you don't have to have this long term 
interest or even you know, have been introduced to it as a child to do something with it. Yeah. It creates a more approachable way of learning for some people. I think so. I think so. I, like I don't see myself as an authority in weaving, but I'm a teacher. I'm a good teacher and I'm a community maker who gets to share what I love. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sharing my work, you know, and having this openness with my work, I don't have to be the best at what I do, but the fact that I'm sharing it with people means that more people are, are able to come to enjoy what I do. More, more people are able to do what I do and hopefully enjoy it as much as I do. Mm-hmm. I feel like our society sort of got to this point, and I think a lot of people are still there, where people want to hide what they do. Like they feel like they're, they're afraid that people are going to copy their work or, you know, they, they don't want to put their work out there because, yeah, they're, they're afraid that people are going to use, use their work. Like when I, when I share my work, I grow and others are able to grow through my work. And I feel like it's this women's circle that we, that we lost for, the long, for a long time, like, you know, the grandma and the mother and the children and the women in the community coming together to, you know, to pass down the skills. Like that, that just wasn't, I mean, it wasn't in my life and I feel like in much of society that, that stuff wasn't happening. And I feel like with the internet, that's brought that back, this possibility of sharing and openness and we don't have to you know, worry about people copying our work. It's, it's more about learning from each other and learning with each other. And, the, yeah, the more, the more I share, the more I hope that people will use elements of what I do and then make it better, mm-hmm. like, you know, synthesise something that they've, you know, they've seen and, and improve on that. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes that, like, I get really excited by that. Like when I see that people have, you know, especially when I can get credited in it, which is lovely, but when I can see people who have been inspired by something like what, that I've done and they've like just, they've just run with it and they've just incorporated other elements of things and just made it their own. So I've made a, um, a hashtag recently, weave weird <laughs> to, to encourage this because they're like, I feel like, you know, people can just sort of rest on their laurels and it's, just, it's you know, there's, there's really easy ways of like, you know, putting something together and yeah, it, it felt like some of the same things were just coming out again and again. I really wanted to encourage people to like do something different, like make it your own, like get your voice and yes, use elements of, you know, all through school we're taught copy this, do this, copy this, copy this, all through school. And then suddenly you get out of school and you're told you're not allowed to copy. Like it seems strange that that you can't learn, you can't use that learning process of copying to help you learn. But there has to, you have to get to a point where you're like, okay, I've learned now and now I'm going to make it my own. Now I'm going to, yeah, weave, weave weird. I like what you just were talking about in terms of just giving your knowledge away because this is something that I've struggled with personally in my design career just for years, especially when you're kind of new at it. If you happen upon something or you spend a lot of time making or creating something or designing something and then you see it, you know, copied in some fashion or another, sometimes it's really yeah. hard not to take that personally. And I think over the years, you know, I've kind of grown immune to that uh, in a certain extent, but then, and I don't remember when it was, but I remember someone saying to me, 
you know, Ashley, there's no such thing as a unique idea. Yeah. You know, b- amongst creatives, the same idea will evolve yeah, from yeah. many different people. And, you know, you should be flattered, like, if someone imitates you because in some ways you had an impression on them. And yeah. not in any way trying to give myself credit for in any shape or form, <laughs> but translate that to what we're doing now as fiber artists. I think that that surfaces uh, still. And I think it was a podcast with Bristol Ivy. Proprietary information came up. And I remember we talked about how there's room for everyone. And especially in what I would consider still like an emerging market or, mm. you know, skill set, such as fiber arts, whether it's weaving, knitting, crocheting, whatever it is, dyeing, you know, yarn production, all those things, there's so much room for so much more. And there doesn't need to be a monopoly. And if one person does something very similar to you, it's actually pretty awesome because you influence them. And it means you're on the right track. Exactly, exactly. And you own own the the brain that made the idea in the first place. And so you just need to keep pushing yourself further than that one idea. Mm-hmm. Like if somebody copies, it's, it's not cool. Seriously, it's not cool if somebody copies your idea and sells, sells it as their own and doesn't credit you. That's not cool. Mm-hmm. But if somebody is learning and using your work to inspire new ideas, that is cool. Mm-hmm. There was a, an article on, the, on TED um, by Seth Gordon um, that I read, um, why I want you to steal my ideas. It's that same idea that, you know, yeah, like use my ideas but make them better and that will help me and you and our community. Like how much, how much cooler will, would the, the entire, you know, textile industry be and the fiber arts be if everybody pushes, everybody keeps pushing themselves and making you know, like I have, the, I'm looking right now at this amazing 70s um, Don Friedman piece that I have in my in my lounge room and it's like, that's cool. I want our generation to make things that people in 40, 50 years will look at and be like, that's cool. That's still innovative. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want it to all be the same. I want everyone to push forward. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. Mm. It's easy to feel... I don't know, threatened or offended or, or whatever, however you may feel sensitive towards mm-hmm. certain things. But, and like you said, it's, it's not cool if someone doesn't credit your idea or, mm-hmm. or even just acknowledged you privately, how you inspired them or, or, you know, if there was some sort of collaboration of sorts, but mm-hmm. the fact that it's growing, I mean, I, nothing excites me more than seeing everything that we're all doing as fiber artists or, you know, fiber influencers or whatever you want to call it, uh, really influence beyond just this initial subset of people that became yes. interested in it. Yeah. Build. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what I'm excited about for the future. Like looking forward, I'm thinking like I've, I'm, not a, I'm not a planner. I've never made, you know, a five-year plan or a three-year plan. <laughs> and I often don't make plans for the end of the year. Um, but you know, just generally in the future, what I, what I'm really looking forward to is working with people who are not weavers in particular 
and even not necessarily in the fibre community, but definitely people with different ideas to me and different skill sets to me. And I want to, you know, collaborate with them so that I can, you know, I can challenge myself. Mm-hmm. So I want to, I want to, you know, expand. Yes, I want to expand the fibre community, but I want to, I want to push it further than that. I want it to be, you know, breaking new grounds in, you know, in other areas. I want to, I want to, I'm dying to find an industrial designer. So if there's any industrial designers out there who are interested in collaborating, (laughs) please contact me. (laughs) (laughs) So going back to uh, a little while ago when you were talking kind of about your fiber journey and how you got to what you're doing now, you talked about how you went into this store closet and there was this box that you found with a picture on top. Mm. In the box, was it was it a oh, loom? Yeah, sorry, it, it was a loom. It was a loom. Sorry, I I sort of skipped over that part. Yeah, was, that was my first loom. That wasn't a cardboard loom. Um, so that's why it was like luck. Like the, my whole journey, it just feels like I've just been open and present, you know, and as mindful as I can be, taking these opportunities and seeing seeing things, you know, things as they came up. But yeah, I, I took that I took that loom home and I didn't actually have any yarn at home. I had some jute and some neon string and luckily all the pieces were in in the box and even the instructions were in the box, you know, very basic sort of instructions. So I set up the loom and I made, you know, a little piece of cloth and I was so excited that I was <laughs> making something. But then I also, at the same time, like being judgmental on myself, I didn't want to make art, you know. I didn't, I didn't want to start saying, oh, look, I'm suddenly an artist who's making things. <laughs> I wanted to make really useful um, utilitarian objects for people. So the first three little pieces of cloth I made, I you know, hand sewed them up and made them into little, a little zippered pouch so that I could use them for like a coin. No, this is a coin purse. I wove myself a coin purse and I wove myself <laughs> a pencil case. And then I, um, you know, went to the, you know, the, the cheap sort of yarnish yarn store, um, crafty store in Australia, Spotlight. And I actually thought, well, I'll, I've made three pieces. I can invest in some yarn now. And I bought some, looking back, just some awful <laughs> <laughs> cheap yarn. And I... Again, I still wasn't ready to make um, wall hangings. And so I made these, you know, um, very useful um, plant mats because every plant needs a mat. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and and then after that, it took me a while. And I think my skills in, you know, um, hunting down and sourcing vintage clothes, um, that's what really pushed me. Um, and helped me find vintage yarn and that's what I started weaving with from the beginning and I felt again like really drawn to these these ex-textile factory cones of yarn that I felt like they had a story behind them already and they had something like when I when I felt the balls of yarn at spotlight they just it didn't feel good it didn't feel like they had like something behind them and it felt like this you know these these spools that had been around for you know, decades, they already had a history to them and that sort of gave my work, like I felt like it gave my work a little bit of 
I don't know, a bit of something behind it, a bit of meat behind it that, it, you know, that I was using these yarns with a story. Mm-hmm. And then I was also using that, you know, I found out the, um, the word de-stash mm-hmm. and I found all these amazing ladies who had bought too much beautiful yarn and they could no longer look at it anymore and they wanted to buy, buy more yarn and they were giving, you know, you know, selling it on eBay and Etsy for next to nothing and so I was able to get these because with weaving you don't use lots and lots for one project. You just use a little, well, in the style that I do, you know, I use a little bit of this colour and a little bit of this and a bit of this. So getting these small, getting these small collections of all little bits that were the end of people's projects was perfect for me. Yeah, and I guess that sort of dictated what I, what I made, the mm-hmm. style I made it. And I had to really listen, like look at and listen to the fibres and what they wanted to do. Like, it, you know, it kept me honest and it helped me to sort of put my ego to one side. Like, because I wasn't going shopping for like, you know, oh, well, I, want, I need this colour and this colour to do my project. It was like, you know, this is what I've got in this collection. What, what is it saying? What is it, what is it asking to be made mm-hmm. basically? which is, you know, environmentally friendly, doing something good for the world and doing something good for these ladies who, you know, they wanted to go and buy some more yarn. <laughs> so I got, <laughs> I, got, I got all this special yarn, which was nice. How do you find vintage yarn? You have to constantly have your eyes open and ears open. You know, you wait until somebody talks about their nana or their auntie. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was already going to sort of estate sales, you know, and garage sales and op shops and markets. And just always like if you see a little bit of something somewhere, then making sure you're asking a few more questions to see if there's any more around. And mm-hmm. and I guess at the start when I was weaving, you know, my I think my husband was really <laughs> instrumental in um, my learning at the beginning because I was sharing all, everything that I was doing on, on Instagram really, really early on people were like, oh, you know, because I, my business had been selling vintage clothes, they were like, are these for sale? Can we buy it? When, when can we buy it? Can we buy one of these? And Aaron said to me, Marianne, you're learning, you know, this is not, this is not for, you can't sell this. This is not the best quality that it can be. And so I didn't sell anything for about a year, the first year. And I just, and during that time, I was weaving for probably four to six hours a day. So it was almost like while, while my child was napping and, you know, I was really working on finishing techniques and making sure that it, you know, held together properly. And, you know, there was, there was a market was already there right from the beginning and I could have easily just said, okay, yeah, sure, yeah, you can buy this, you can have some, but I didn't, I didn't sell for the first year, but I, I made for my friends, I made for my family and I gave, gave, gave away. And I think that was another way of, you know, I guess subconsciously building an awareness of what I was doing as well because my friends, you know, one is a clothing designer and she hung hers in a shop, another owned a cafe and she hung hers in her cafe. And so it was around, it was, I, I had my work on the internet and I had it around physically for people to see for quite a while before I started selling. 
Yeah, so I think holding back and making sure that I was really, um, really happy with what I was producing and I would be happy to buy it mm-hmm. so that I could sell it for a certain price point and it wouldn't be like, you know, I feel so terrible when I see people who have made their, just the first couple of weavings and then they sell it for like $50 on Etsy and I think you've put in so much time into that piece and you've bought the yarn and you're selling it for next to nothing. Just hold back. Don't sell those first few. Don't, you know, if you can, give the first ones away. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you'll get, you know, lovely feeling. You'll still be able to see them around. And then as you get better, realise what you're worth. You Like look at the amount of time you've put into that. Look at the um, amount of money that you've spent on uh, materials and then sell it for what it's worth mm-hmm. like don't don't sell a weaving for fifty dollars mm-hmm. <laughs> it's worth more than that guys have there been any particular yarns that have had a story that uh, I don't know a story that was exciting to you I think tennis was one of the first people who I found because I'd been using vintage yarn and like oh, vintage yarn it's such like a a, a, a sweet and sour you know, um, fiber to work with because you whatever you have it's in limited supply so you get these cones and it's like oh I love this so much I love it oh and then you use it and then it's gone so I could never recreate another piece and I can never get those yarns back so it's really you know it's a bit of a struggle working with vintage yarns but it also means that it pushes my pushes my work forward as well because it always challenges me to find new ways to work with things. But I think in terms of yarns that other people can still get, Tannis was one of the first people, yarn producers, dyers, um, who I worked with who I just fell in love with her her product and the the way it made my work better. Just using this beautiful yarn made me feel happy. It like it was it's it was something that had been made with love. And I was making something with love, mm-hmm. using it, and you know it just it just felt good. Felt so. I think she was one of the first um, producers that I started using that really turned me on to, yeah, putting putting something special in, putting special things into my weavings that you know, yeah, that would add that little bit of extra something. Were there ever any vintage yarns that you kind of came upon that? Oh, just like took your breath away or that you were just so excited. (laughs) Still, still every time. Like I'm running low at the moment on my neutrals and like when I get like probably say maybe 12 12 cones every month or so Mm -hmm. and some of them are big and, you know, when I get them it's like, oh, this one's really lovely and like the really bulky, chunky ones are always good because I like to mix them up with, the thinner ones, and it seems like the thinner ones come up more often. So when I get some nice chunky vintage yarn, like it's always so precious. But we also use the vintage yarns in the kits that we make up. Like we sell, we sell beginners kits um, online, and we give them little yarn packs to go with them. And so we use the the vintage. So we always try to have some special things in there for people as well, so they get to experience that. There's some interesting fibres that have either been hand spun or, you know, put some roving in there or it's got a bit of a glitter, you know, lurex through it. Going back to one of the other things that you were talking about, 
how you brought florists into your workshops. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about what precipitated that. So um, when I first taught my first workshop for Megan, so Megan Morton is a stylist in Australia and she runs this school where people can come and learn things. But she also does styling classes as well. And her space was magnificent, you know, big windows and um, always fresh flowers and she'd have some catering and, um, you know, sometimes, you know, tea, sometimes champagne. And it really felt like uh, like an event, like you would come along and it wouldn't be just some people sitting in a dark room learning, like you were learning but it was this lovely way of encouraging, you know, people to be a bit more social. So it sort of almost felt a bit more like a, you know, like a like you were meeting friends and you were having this, you know, afternoon tea. So it was sort of like elevating the workshop. And that really, like I, it was my aesthetic as well. I always, you know, like, I guess like I like my home to look pretty and um, like it's really important to have lovely lighting and I have a lot of plants in my home and things. So I wanted people to feel like when they came to my workshops in New York that I was going to give them that same type of experience. I wanted them to come in and smell the flowers and and there'd be local, you know, bakery, treats from a local bakery that we would direct them to afterwards and we'd give them a mimosa and like we wanted it to be it to enhance the workshop. We wanted it to to make yeah make it easier for people to talk to each other, make it feel like more of a social occasion, so that afterwards they would feel like, hey, I just made some friends, mm-hmm. and they would be able to connect after the class, which a lot of people do. That's so great. Yeah. Well, this is the the next sort of step with yeah another possibility about you know, there's always a million possibilities of what we can do with um, Studio Marianne Moody is um, bringing in other people to do workshops. Mm. So we've got a florist who we really love and she does sort of flower crowns and, you know, flower arranging and she also does um, natural dyeing. And so we're thinking, well, maybe we can have like, you know, I'm moving to a new studio space in the next couple of weeks and we're thinking, well, maybe we can expand that. Like people, if you like weaving, you might like this as well. Here's another mm-hmm. workshop by another person. So, yeah, like building that community and, again, building it further than, than the fibre arts. Mm-hmm. Speaking of flower crowns, I have a friend uh, that lives on the East Coast, uh, Kirsten, and she's actually from Australia too. And she makes the most gorgeous flower crowns. And she made this leaf jacket coat oh, wow. for her daughters. But she's <laughs> just incredible. And she's located up near New York area. Mm, great. I know there there's probably a lot of people that could consider you an influencer and a mentor. But who are some of the people that you might consider a mentor or influencer? I think really super early on, one of my friends who was into weaving and she just is like so composed and she just makes she also does ceramics and she's an architect and she's like just crazy beautiful her name's Genevieve Griffiths um and I've shared her weaving before on my Instagram you know she does beautiful crochet and just everything she lends her hand to just comes out so so beautifully and perfectly um and when I saw one of her weavings that was that was a um a big uh, inspiration I think at the start, and I thought, I want, I want to do something like that. I want to make something, you know, in that sort mm-hmm. of style. 
and I think, you know, Belinda from I Am Alchemy at the beginning as well, she really helped sort of point me in the right direction Mm -hmm. of my journey. But I think in terms of people who I haven't met, um, Brooke and Lynn, um, Mimi Jung, she's a weaver um, in California and she has the most beautiful minimal weaves. Like her style hasn't necessarily influenced my style, but I'm really inspired by the way that she works. You know, it's very careful and methodical and she doesn't put out a whole bunch of weaves like she does. You know, there are very few and they're always perfect, (laughs) beautiful pieces of art. Very early on as well on the other, other side of America was New Friends, two girls who had... They'd studied textile, I think design, and they came out and they were just like experimenting like wildly and I just, I was really, you know, turned on by what they were doing like in terms of like clashing colours and patterns and, um, yeah, I really, and, and like both ends of the spectrum having this really minimal style of um, Mimi Jung and then having new friends just killing it in terms of, crashing everything Mm -hmm. together it was like this is there's so many possibilities with weaving there's not one style this is you can do whatever you want you add your own um, personality into the way that you weave which is also what I encourage in my classes when you go home like if you want to hang your piece from something it doesn't have to be from a, a dowel or a piece of rod like look around, are you a knitter, like are you a cook, maybe you can hang it from a wooden spoon or do you live by a river, like go and get some driftwood or try to incorporate things of your parts of your personality into your weaving to really set you apart from Mm -hmm. other people. You know, as you look at the next year and and you see all these new fibre artists kind of emerging and maybe quite a few people that are also intimidated by either great work that they've seen from the past or some of the new work that's come up in the last few years, like your own and and other weavers, what would you say to the person that hasn't quite dove in that very interested in getting started or even someone that's wanting to make, incorporate it somehow into a way of, you know, like a business? I would say weave every day if you can, like just do a little bit of weaving every day. And every weave that you make, try something new, whether that's a new fibre or a new skill or a different colour combination. Every yeah, And you will learn something new with every weave then. So you will push yourself forward. If I could give that same advice that Aaron gave to me so early on, which is don't don't sell your early work. Either keep your early work or give it to your loved ones. Your loved ones will appreciate it. Um, But then as you grow and as you learn, you're going to get so much better as you go. So if you can hold off a little bit at the start, sort of build awareness of what you're doing through social media, sure, but don't sell your early work until you're really proud of it, until you think, I would buy this, like at, you know, not just at, at um, at a market, but I would like go to a shop and buy this or, you know, just 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 wait that little bit longer until you've um, honed your skills and you've really got like you know the finishing techniques are, are good and but yeah, I, the, I think the biggest things are try to weave a little bit every day, always try something new, give your give your stuff give your work away. 
even artists, artist swaps are great. If you love somebody else's work, often as artists we can't afford to buy other artists' work. So if you can do art swaps with people, then that's even better. The winner of last week's giveaway is Tina Charlotte. You've won a $25 gift certificate to Fringe Supply Company. Congratulations. This week's giveaway is sponsored by Southern Textiles, a wonderful farm and natural dye studio in Tennessee. We're giving away a naturally dyed mini skein kit, perfect for weaving, knitting, or crochet. To enter this giveaway, leave a comment on today's episode's blog post at woeful.com. This past week, with the help of my sweet mother, I've been catching up on the podcast episode transcriptions. We have several hearing-impaired listeners who have appreciated these so much, and I'd like to do better at getting them up in a more timely manner. So, I'm reaching out to all you fiber folks in hopes that someone with experience in transcription might be interested in helping us moving forward. If you'd like to get involved, please reach out to me at hello at woeful.com. I wanted to make sure and thank today's sponsor again, Knitterly. I've been so inspired by the work Shelly has done to bring yarns from small farms and local pastures to our fiber community through her store. Make sure to visit their online shop, which carries a large selection of some of my favorite yarns, including these small farm yarns, at shop.knitterly.net and in person when in Petaluma. And look for an update in the coming weeks when they will be releasing some beautiful weaving kits, including the loom, sustainable fibers, and all. The biggest of thanks to everyone involved in this week's episode. Shelly, Carlene, Beatrice, Amber, Jennifer, Emily, Amy, and Marianne. I hope you'll join me each week as we talk and learn from more fascinating fiber folk. For podcast notes and transcription, visit woeful.com. If you're interested in being a part of this podcast, including our Man on the Street segment, or as an episode or giveaway sponsor, shoot me an email at hello at woeful.com. Have a wonderful week.